What's going on, everybody? This is Sean of Ross Like Music. And this is the Super Sunny Show. I'm La Molly. This is Blue and Green Radio. Hello and welcome along to this month's edition of the Music for Modern Living Radio Show right here on Blue and Green Radio. You're locked in with me, Nigel Gentry. Party people, this is Mr. V of Confessions of a Curly Mind broadcasting through Blue and Green Radio. You're listening to Steve Williams at UK5.org. Welcome to the Blue and Green Sessions. Ride the vibe with DJ Ronnie Ron. Twisted Souls. You're listening to the Blue and Green podcast, and I hope you enjoy what we are going to say. Blueandgreenradio.com. Welcome, friends. You're tuned into another episode of the Blue in Green podcast. My name's Imran. Thanks very much for your time and your company for today's show. It's an extra special show, uh, which we'll talk about momentarily. Qu- first, uh, quickly point out that the Blue in Green podcast runs in conjunction with Blue in Green Radio, the online internet radio station we broadcast from. Uh, we're based in London and we broadcast shows from uh, Niigata, Japan, and obviously London and uh, San Jose. California, uh, Denver, Colorado, Melbourne, Australia, Canberra, Australia. So we're so super lucky and fortunate to really present a wonderful array of shows, basically highlighting our affection and adoration for contemporary funk and soul and jazz and latin music and uh, it's an absolute joy uh, to be able to present this stuff for you and this podcast series uh, basically is an extension of that we get to talk to lots of our blue and green radio presenters from across the world which is excellent but we also have the incredible luxury to talk to some just amazing artists people who are just real uh, flag wavers for the kind of music that we're trying our best to uh, support and just express our our, our love for. I'm really excited about the episode today. It's a really excellent episode. I'm very, very proud of it and um, I hope you guys will, will really enjoy it as I'm sure you will. We get to talk to Jesse Fisher today. Now, um, the eagle-eared among you will know we we have spoken to Jesse before, as far back as episode twenty-four of this podcast series, which I think came out about eleven to twelve months ago. Uh, we're discussing uh, now we're in episode fifty-eight now, which is very very cool. Uh, but we have the incredible luxury to talk to Jesse about his uh, brand new album, Resilience, uh, released in August uh, twenty twenty, or about to be released. Beg your pardon, August twenty twenty. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful wonderful album uh he's an incredible artist and producer and musician uh so kind of getting the chance to talk to him about his creative process is is it's a real joy to be honest it's uh, to be a fan of someone uh for this long and then have this opportunity for not just once uh but for twice to be able to sit down and talk about uh, kind of everything that goes into putting his albums together is it you know I, it's it's not wasted on me at all so I'm I'm very very lucky uh, to have had that time and uh, hopefully we will again uh, it, we kind of go long in this episode and I'll be honest I, as I, I said to him at the end I could have I had stuff for another hour <laughs> of things to talk to him about so. I really hope we'll get the opportunity, perhaps when another project uh, is available, we can have the, the chance to kind of sit down and talk music again. Uh, we don't just talk music. Um, for Resilience uh, with, um, and the Cross Currents album, uh, excuse me, Cross Currents EP, which came out last year, which spawned the first of our conversations, uh, both projects are... Uh, very indicative of the times of which they've been released so 
we get to um, so uh, it, it's it's extra special that I kind of have the time to talk to him about those the circumstances about those release and the times that they were released in so I won't say any more than that because we we go into it instantly uh, with everything so um, we go into both projects I think on the episode today so it's uh, again it's a real pleasure very very uh, grateful for his time and uh, I really hope you guys will enjoy the show uh, today as well Uh, regular listeners of this podcast will know we feature two songs uh, in every episode the uh, first is picked by me and then our guest obviously picks the closing number Jesse's got a beautiful song for you to end the show i have the luxury of picking the opening one and i thought it was very very apt to dip into something from resilience and uh, i thought i'd give you the lead single which is uh, again i mentioned in the discussion the colossal pairing of jesse fisher and trumpeter christian uh, scott who's just one of my favorite uh, artists just ever he has uh, he's well he, an exceptional uh, musician and producer with a really both artists both very clear visions Uh, for their music and uh, I think it really comes across so I'm going to give you this this is the title track from Resilience I very much hope you enjoy the show and uh, it's a really great episode and uh, much needed conversation and I hope you guys will appreciate it thanks very much friends Uh, Jesse Fisher to the stage Thank you. 
Victor, how are you? Hey, good, how are you? I'm fantastic. I'm sorry to... It feels like Sunday uh, 5 p.m. is peak family time, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm invading anything. Oh, no, it's okay. Well, uh, you know, everything is different now. This is, this is really the only time I have to, to actually do my own thing. I have my daughter full-time now, like Monday through Friday, because my wife works. Um, right. So this is weekend is like my only time to actually get my work done and stuff. So wow. this is good. How, how have you, well, firstly, how have you found the quarantine life over the last few months? Uh, it's been a, quarantine has been very strange, you know, like I'm sure it is for you, but I'm just mm. trying to make the best of it. I'm trying to, you know, I'm spending a lot of time with my daughter and that's good because we were so rushed before. I feel like our whole life was just like rushing from one thing to the next. Mm. And even though my life as a musician was never as much on the road as most musicians because I sort of, I, I had already made a transition to trying to do more studio work and sort of other music work like engineering, producing, mixing. I kind of did that pivot before my daughter was born. So even before the pandemic, I was home a lot more than most musicians, but the last four months I've been home a lot. Like I haven't been, it hasn't been this long of like not traveling probably since 15 years ago or something like that. So, so, you know, I think for, for someone like me, I've been lucky that I have health insurance. Well, you you don't have to worry about this in the UK, but in the U S health insurance, the whole system is very, very backwards and it's tied to your employment. And if you are a freelancer or if you don't have a steady job or if you lose your job or a lot of jobs just don't provide health insurance at all. So I'm in, I'm in the lucky position that my wife has a, a full-time job and that we have good health insurance and that she was able to continue her job during the shutdown. So, oh, wow. um, and I was able to basically stop working and do all the childcare because, um, you know, the, our schools shut down right around the same time that all my gigs stopped happening. So it was kind of like yeah. the best of a worst situation for me. It's actually, you know, she's she'll be six next month. Mm. When I was her age, my parents are both educators. I was actually homeschooled um, for the first few years of school. So this is what I remember. I always had this fond memory of sort of like this idyllic time with my parents around around that age. And I wanted to provide that for her. In fact, we looked into homeschooling and that just financially in this this generation, it kind of doesn't make any sense. Like... There just wasn't a way that we could figure out how to do it. So now I got a little chance to do some homeschooling, although it's it's not the way I would want it. But um, it's nice, you know. Does she respond well to it? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is she's a lot more social than I was or than I am. You know, I, I grew up kind of pretty independent, and I had my brother, which was nice. She's an only child. So, you know, it's different. But she, for her... Like I think most people, she really misses seeing other people every day and playing with people. Mm. And I happen to be pretty much just like, I'm fine being in the room by myself all day, every day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> actually, for, for like extreme introverts like me, like there was a lot of jokes about this at the beginning of the pandemic because like, this is what I dream of. I would love to yeah. never go out, never see anybody just work and hang out with family and stuff. I, I get a lot of anxiety every time I have to go do a gig or travel or tour or anything. Do you? Wow. 
That's yeah. really interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I think last time we spoke, uh, you may remember uh, from a year ago, and you, you did talk about being a, just a sort of a shy and reserved person. But I suppose yeah. you're, you're someone whose music I always sort of attributed as really sort of thriving off collaboration. Do you know what I mean? So if you're kind of in, in you know, and you perform live, um, well, you used to perform live a lot more, as you say. Yeah, used but, to. you know, you're... you're <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, well, not, yeah, not so much in the last four months, but I guess before that. But, you know, you kind of, is it difficult kind of putting yourself in these situations then where you're like, I, I want to do this, I have to do this, but this is the hardest thing in the world for me to do at this point? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a big reason why I switched to doing more studio work, because when I'm engineering, it's kind of like I'm on my home turf, you know, mm. and I, I people... I don't have as much anxiety as when I have to go out to an unfamiliar location and play with people I've never met before. Um, and that's, you know, I'm a professional, so, like, I have the tools to do that now, but it, it's, it's emotionally, it's hard for me. Um, but in terms of the people that I've collaborated with, like, on my own music, they're usually people that I already have a relationship with. It's pretty rare that I just call somebody up out of the blue and say, hey, I want to do this record with you, like, I don't really want that because my music is, it's pretty personal to me. So like, I have to feel comfortable with the person. I don't like being vulnerable in front of someone that I never met. And when we're, when we're making music together, I'm, I'm really vulnerable. So yeah, I, I usually just, it's usually the same people on, you know, from record to record is usually people who I've worked with before, or it's someone that I already have a relationship with via some other project so that I feel comfortable enough to like mm. open, open my weird sort of world up to them, you know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's always, it is always sort of surprising, I guess, in terms of, as I said, uh, it, everything you do kind of, um, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't show that, you know, there is a, you do work with, with lots Thanks. of people and uh, you do perform and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's encouraging, isn't it? Like that you can, you know, address those fears and concerns and say, well, this is what I got to do. And you kind of press on with it. So it's always really exciting to see something like that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of us actually, I think maybe we did talk about this, but there's a lot of people in music who got here specifically because music was the way that we were able to navigate social situations, you know? So I feel like mm. there's more, there's more than you would expect. There's more people in music that are extreme introverts and very shy and not comfortable really talking to other people because at least for me, like, you know, if, if I think back to high school, if I, if I was going say I went to a party, I wouldn't really be able to talk to people but if I was mm. playing at a party, you know, if I'm if my band was playing at a party, it's super. It was much easier to just like, well, I'm gonna go and play my instrument and interact with people that way, and so I kind of like got into a habit of that being the way I navigate social situations. Does any of that just out of interest come down to sort of like confidence in, say, yourself in as a like in the in the setting of say music and collaborating with people is is any of that like a, a, com a confidence in say your, your abilities or is it specifically a social kind of thing hmm i don't know i mean i guess it's i don't really know how to tell the difference i mean i know yeah, as yeah. my as my musical abilities got better i was more confident in new musical situations um mm. but that didn't it didn't make me more confident socially like i can go and play music right now in a <laughs> 
and and play with a like play it in a band that I'm very comfortable with and the music could sound great. And then after the show, I'm going to go hide in the green room. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I don't really want to like talk to anybody. You know what I mean? It's, it's a yeah, little odd. Yeah. So no, I, I don't, you know. well, I don't, I don't think it's odd uh, at all. I mean, I, I immerse myself in radio, which is basically me ultimately in a room by myself yeah, so. <laughs> playing, playing music, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, no, I completely understand. Yeah. It's, I, I suppose yeah. the, the not not the stereotype but i suppose the assumption is that musicians are very uh outgoing and and um uh social people i guess that's just sort of an assumption i i, I guess yeah. but no it's interesting to learn i found that. i found that's not really true for because mo- mm. honestly you need to, to 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 get to the level that we're at now you kind of have to have locked yourself in a room for a really long time, year after year after year, just to like practice and develop a sound right. and study. So there has to be some level of like introversion and and being willing to not, you know, not go out. I, I always say like, oh, when people say, oh, I tried to practice when I was a kid, but I never had the discipline for it. For me, it wasn't really the discipline. It was more just like I didn't really have any urge to go out and do other things i mean i I shouldn't Mm. say that i did do other things i did sports and i did other kind of activities that were kind of like structured but i I wasn't really like just going to hang out all the time every day like like a lot of kids are but some some musicians definitely have the star power like you know when you see someone who's a front person like there's some musicians or singers or instrumentalists that just have that magnetic kind of um you know, charisma. And yeah. I, I don't think I'm one of them, you know, for, for most of my musical career, I'm accompanying other people. You know, I back up singers or I'm backing up instrumentalists or I'm producing or engineering, supporting a record. So I play 99% of the time I'm playing a supporting role, but I also just really enjoy being a composer and writing music. And so that's why I feel like I have to release music under my own name like with me as the front person only because I like to write, you know, if I could write for someone else that like in the classical world, composers are not necessarily performing their own music. So I always said that, Oh, if I could write a jazz record and have somebody else play it, that would be awesome. Maybe one day. Yeah. I think this, we definitely said this, uh, I think in our last conversation, because I was always very surprised. I, I would have thought out of the full repertoire, the full Jesse Fisher repertoire that say playing, would have been the thing that you would have said what if i had to pick one that you know me being uh, like by a piano or a keyboard etc that would have been the one thing you would have picked so i remember being very surprised when you said that last time yeah i mean i still struggle with it i feel like i'm not young anymore you know I'm, i'm sort of like not the younger generation anymore i haven't been for a while and i think i sort of reached a point where i feel like I'm not getting any better on, on piano and keyboard, like as an actual instrumentalist. Um, and maybe that's just where I am. But for a long time, I felt kind of like, okay, I've reached the limits of my abilities, but that I can still develop my sound as a writer, as a composer. And so that's kind of what I've been focusing on. And I think that just naturally, that's what I've always focused on. But it took me a really long time to come to terms with the fact that I'll never be a virtuoso on piano. I think I used to want that, but I didn't, I never wanted it enough to actually put the time in and, and put the research in and, and to get to that level. So what would you be missing to achieve that? What you, that's what it is more time. I don't know. I wish like I that. knew. 
I don't know. I mean, I wonder, I, I wonder if, <laughs> if, I wonder if we all have just like unlimited potential to tap or if, you know, the playing piano is a very right. physical thing. It's very physical. It's like not, not every athlete is going to be able to run as fast as every other athlete just because of the nature of their body. And so, you know, for piano, it's a combination of physical things with your hands, but it's a lot of mental stamina and creativity and, and speed when you're improvising. So, you know, I wonder, I don't know. Um, I, I wonder if there's really a limit to what each person can do, or if we're all just like a blank slate and, and anyone can develop any talent if they put enough time in. I'm not sure. That's, I mean, it's interesting that you would sort of have that, I don't know, that realization. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I don't play an instrument myself, so I could never, you know, in, in honestly comment, but I, I couldn't, agree with uh, you know the notion that say your music isn't getting any better i mean uh, listen to to projects as they've developed over the years and they are more more multi-layered they are more intricate they are more um they kind of impact me on 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 so many different ways we talked about cross currents uh last year which was a wonderful ep i mean i suppose when you think about it what a difference a year makes i mean we talked about cross currents uh a year ago almost exactly a year ago and it being yeah. like a, a project born of protest, really, and sort of uh, addressing the the prospect that, say, the, the current U.S. government has kind of weaponized this sort of fear of immigrants and 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 that kind of culture. I think in many ways, oh, the U.K. government is uh, well, the U.K. has had that that same yeah. problem. But we talked about cross currents as being a an EP as a, as a, a, a project born of that. And now like a year later, we're looking at resilience, which is being released in completely, you know, considerably darker times. You know, we've just talked about for the last four months of we're entering our fifth month, I guess, of, of quarantine in a completely new way that each of us have to sort of live our lives now. Um, but there's also say the U S uh, response that, kind of shook the, the entire world and it's still doing that you know the death of george floyd and how the u.s has had to kind of address these these issues within themselves and again resilience is a project that is very much embedded into this uh this time and um i mean how do you kind of look at so those last two projects about the times that they've been released in and what what they're saying about everything that's happening around them that's a very long-winded question. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because we're, uh, how do I look at these two projects? Well, I mean, first of all, just in terms of the projects, all this music was kind of being developed at the same time. I mean, a lot of these yes. songs go back four or five years even. Um, I don't think the times we, we're living in right now are like considerably darker than they were a year ago i just think more people are awakening awakening to that you know right right um in terms of uh, racial inequality the xenophobia the um this like uh polarization this kind of has been happening for a really long time and i mean like decades and decades but i think it's not getting better it's it's getting worse and but i think in the last month or so there's just been this crazy awakening where people a lot of people who maybe weren't directly affected by it are starting to pay attention more um i think it's crazy that it took this kind of like pandemic to draw people's attention um but 
whatever it is, this crazy confluence of things, um, it's been very powerful. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the music I released last year was maybe a nod in that direction. I think mm -hmm. the music I'm releasing now is somewhat uh, also a nod in that direction of protest, but keeping in mind that this was, even this, this album was recorded a year ago, August. Hmm. So um, I think for a lot of us, uh, you know, I, I haven't really been able to write anything in the last few months because it's so, it's just so overwhelming. And I feel like we're in the middle of it. I think we're going to have to get through to the other side and really process. Um, but I think there's going to be a whole new set of music from, from me, from everyone that I know that's going to be dealing with the response to the pandemic and, um, I mean, I just think it's it's accelerated and it's exacerbated everything that was happening before, right? There was already this push to keep foreigners out of the U.S. and to get, you know, to strengthen the borders and to reduce the amount of legal immigration there's happening, reduce the amount of illegal immigration that's happening. Um, that was already happening. But now with the pandemic, they can use that as an excuse to completely shut down everything and to mm -hmm. make people really feel unwelcome they're not even, I mean, for a while, they're not taking asylum requests. The, the whole thing is just really sad. And it's just like, um, you know, it makes me angry. It makes me upset. And I have a privilege to, A, you know, have citizenship here. B, I'm white, I'm male. I have all these privileges that are protecting me. And I would like to stick my, you know, to, to use that, to use the platform that I have to try to, you know, first of all, speak the truth as I see it, right? And second of all, call attention to things that I think are not right, not fair. Um, I don't know if we're changing minds exactly. I think it's really hard to change a mind in this day and age. But, yeah. um, but I don't know. You know, we're, we're basically, as artists, like our, our role, our mission is to, to speak the truth and to portray what we see and what we think is right. Um, and hopefully either speak to other people that feel the same way or maybe somehow pique somebody's interest that isn't really on board yet and to help them maybe to take another look at some of the issues that they might have dismissed before, you know? Mm -hmm. We're not going to recruit uh, clan members all of a sudden, but, you know, there might be somebody who just is comfortable and theoretically is liberal and votes Democrat, but maybe had never really thought through the, the all the... All, how, how all their actions kind of affect other people. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a long-winded answer. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. It's a perfect yeah. time. It's... I mean, but it's just crazy. Everything <laughs> is interrelated, so it's hard to just focus on one thing at a time sure. right now. As a studio owner, I mean, the amount of artists and musicians and bands that you, you have coming through the doors, have you kind of noticed a, a, a real kind of change in tone of people's music and, and what their ultimate message is now? Yeah, I did. I actually started noticing this about five years ago. Um, oh, wow. I, I grew up, you know, I'm born in the 80s. I kind of grew up listening to my parents' record collection, which was a lot of late 60s and early 70s music. When you think about it, that was a, a lot of music at that time was sort of like protest music um, or political, you know, anything from Bob Dylan to Bob Marley to... Um, a lot of the jazz and free jazz that was coming out then, or, um, or even just, there was just a lot of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, James Brown was the first to kind of like 
have this idea about I'm black and I'm proud and there was all this other music that was happening. So I kind of always grew up thinking that music could have that power. But if you think about the music of the 80s and 90s, it, it didn't really have that. You know, I think I was always kind of searching for something like that. There was a lot of angst and a lot of emotion, but it wasn't tied to a specific political movement because there really wasn't one in this country, you know. And so I guess if you go back about five years I remember that's when projects started coming in that had a little bit more of a message. Like 2015, um, I think, was it 2014 or 2015? So, okay, Eric Garner, um, I don't know if he's the name, that's a name that you know, but he was a man in New York City in Staten Island who got into a little incident with the cops and he was killed by a, a police officer who choked him to death basically. And that's where the phrase I can't breathe came from. Cause he was, right. he was literally saying, I can't breathe. And um, this was, it started cause he was standing on the corner selling loose cigarettes, which is technically against the law. You have to sell them in a pack, but that's like his job. You know, that's how he made his living. Um, mm. And they wanted to give him a hard time. And he's, you know, he kind of talked back and that was like, such an insult to the police that they're going to have four or five people physically restraining him and assaulting him. Anyway, long story short, after his death, that's when I started to see a lot of uh, more musical things happening. My friend Godwin Louie, who's a Haitian American saxophonist, wrote a song called I Can't Breathe that we recorded that year, I think. Was it 2014 or 2015? It didn't actually get released until 2018, I think. Um, and then there was the soundtrack to the movie Whose Streets, which was a, a documentary about the Ferguson uprising that a friend of mine, Samora Pinderhues, who's a brilliant writer and composer, he did the score. And I, so I, I helped him engineering some of the score on that. Um, so I got a, a kind of peek into that documentary as it was being made. So that was really powerful. And then after that, 2015, 2016, um, it almost seemed like, the majority of the music that I was involved in had some kind of political leaning or protest music. And I think, you know, maybe it's my energy that I was putting out that, you know, I was interested in that kind of music. And so those were kind of the projects that came across, uh, that, that came across my desk. Um, I started getting involved in this band called Ajoyo that is, yeah. a, you know, it's, it's, it's a specifically p political project. It's sort of like, modern Afro pop jazz fusion um, with this, but a lot of the songs, not everything, but a lot of the songs are specifically talking about, um, you know, protest. In fact, the album we just released like two months ago is called War Chant. And it's basically, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty, pretty directly a protest against Donald Trump and against the, the situation in the U.S. that allowed him to become president, you know, it's we can't just think it's like one person. I mean, it's it's a lot of things that have happened in this country that have come to this point where enough people are going to vote for him that he will be elected. So yeah, I'm happy that I'm playing music and it's not just about oh what chord should I play or what melody can I play or some kind of like sick lick. It's about actually saying something. I think the older yeah. I get, the more I want to really focus on music that's going to reach people in some kind of way. Yeah. How are you feeling about current uh, elections, if I may ask? Uh, not great. Not great. <laughs> I mean, I really don't, I don't know that, I don't know the politics in the UK that well. I know, I know 
only really know what's happening in this country, but it's not good. Mm. Yeah, well, there were frightening similarities, I, I, I think, uh, at, yeah. <laughs> between our our governments, and um, it's one of those things where you kind of, I, I imagine we're sort of both having these experiences where you just sort of stop and you're looking around and just sort of thinking, I don't understand, <laughs> I don't a, I don't understand what's happening, and b, I don't understand how I fit into this. You know, I'm not sure who 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 is allowing certain powers to be to come to to you know to to have their their message realized you know what kind of public has to sort of facilitate this and yeah. what it means what is it what does it say about your place within that country as well that's kind of an issue that i have yeah i think well the u.s is a very large country and mm. i've only explored ever i think i counted the other day you know i've been to 35 states out of 50 plus territories but even in those states i've really only been to the usually i've been to only like big city centers so right. there's a huge part of america that's just like very rural or suburban i mean both things that i just am not familiar with and it's hard for me to make a judgment to, to uh, until i really spend time there but i really feel like it's like a complete different country you know i grew up right outside of new york city and I think a lot of people in this country wish New York city was its own country, you know, <laughs> like, like I don't, I don't think, yeah. I think for the most part, the, the Northeast, the coast, the rest of the country hates and like really, really hates and wants bad things to happen too. Because I guess we represent what, I don't know. We represent the things that are unfamiliar. And I think people mm. just in general, are scared of things that are unfamiliar. And I think most people in the U.S. really live in towns where they only know other white people. I mean, most people that live in the U.S. are white. Most people who are white only know other white people. Right. And may have never, ever, ever met somebody who's Muslim or somebody who is uh, bisexual or transsexual. They may have never met somebody who's an immigrant from West Africa or an immigrant for the Caribbean. And... Um, you know, or their only interactions may be sort of limited, you know, maybe like uh, someone that serves them in a restaurant or somebody who they interact with at school or someone they interact with at work, but it's not the same level of familiarity where you're coming over to someone's house, you're doing sleepovers with your kids. Um, I just, or there may only be like one or two examples of a minority in that town. Yeah. Um, and so... I think for me, I'm, I'm white. I grew up in a town that's majority white. And even for this town, it was, it's pretty liberal, very liberal leaning town. Um, and even me, I feel like I got pretty indoctrinated, not by anybody's ill intent, but just like, that's the culture. Like it's, it's a little bit of just, that's the way you grow up. And a little bit of also, this is what you see on TV. And if, if the only, you know, if, if what you see on TV about any minority, if it's a, someone who's Muslim, if it's somebody who's black or um, Lat, Lat, Latinx or something, you might not have any real life examples to to check. Does this correspond with reality or is this just some script writer's idea of like what's happening? Right. Um, you know, so anyway... I don't even remember what the question is, but it's a big country and I don't understand 
I can't say I understand what's going on here. I'm not a political scientist and I'm not a student of history. I know just that, you know, there's a lot, there's a large part of this country that is just scared of the unknown and they're not familiar with people from outside, whether it's outside their community, outside their race or outside the country. I think I've had, I'm really lucky that I chose music because it allowed me to move to New York City and to inter, to uh, interact with so many different people from all over the world, like literally every continent. And it's not just like you go to the office and you send some emails and you go home. It's like you're on tour together, you're sharing living space, you're sharing a bus, you're sharing a hotel room, you know, you're really, really getting to know people and it's a different type of workplace. And I feel lucky that I've been able to make really personal friendship, like lifelong friendships with people that are not from my background and been able to Mm -hmm. have some really, really tough discussions. I think as white people, we, I, and, you know, we have to have really difficult discussions. And I went through a lot of this 10, 15 years ago. um, And, you know, I'm sure said a lot of things that were, that made me feel dumb and just, just said things that weren't, that probably hurt people's feelings. But the fact that I was, I was able to put myself in a position and feel uncomfortable, I think was really important to my own growth. And I think this country and the world is not going to progress unless we're all able to put ourselves into uncomfortable situations and try to check out what's, what's really happening from other people's point of view. It is difficult, isn't it? Because I, I agree. My, I would have thought it would have been, uh, as you had said, that there are parts of the US where they are only affiliating with uh, the people next door as such. But And, you know, their, their projections of, of other cultures and uh, things like that, it, it, it comes through that TV screen. But what do you do about that? What, what does anybody do to kind of... To, to change that mindset or to change that exposure to, to what, what is being seen of, of certain cultures and, and, and things like that. I mean, yeah, there's, mo- there's many different prongs we have, right? The TV and media in general is a huge, huge driver of culture. And so I think it is, it is really important to get um, minorities and people of color and specifically black voices in the writer's room, you know, in, in positions of power, casting directors, um, directors of, of films and, and TV series, um, mm. owning their own studios. Um, same thing in the, the music business. Like you see a lot of, if you look at the actual f- like front people of bands, right? They're, they're pretty, it's pretty diverse. Um, but if you look behind the scenes, it's almost all white. It's I'm, all I know about is like the jazz world. Right. But if you, I think pretty much across the board, if you look at publicists, if you look at, people who own venues, people who own recording studios, people who own radio promotion agencies. Um, it's really, really heavily leaning white. And a lot of that has, sadly, has to do with the way wealth is distributed. Um, there, in this country, there's a huge gap in wealth that's much bigger than the gap in income. So like if you take a white family that's making a certain income and then you take a black family that's making the exact same income, there might be an 80% or 90% wealth gap. And that has to do with money that gets passed down generation after generation. And that has to do, a lot of this goes back to the fact that white people have been building wealth in this country for, you know, generation after generation after generation, back to a time when black people were not allowed to have wealth, right? 
And it also has to do with things more recently, like um, you talking about who do you know who lives next door to you? Well, up until about, I don't know, 60 or 70 years ago, the federal government was restricting who was allowed to live next door to you, right? You couldn't buy property in a certain neighborhood if you're black. You couldn't get federally insured mortgage in a certain neighborhood. There's all these kind of like legalized, I mean, the, the racism was baked into the system. It wasn't like a byproduct or a mistake. Like it was baked into the system. And that's what actually drew a lot of racial lines in our neighborhoods. And, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn now. Brooklyn is still extremely, extremely segregated by race. Um, oh, really? But it's not, you think of New York City as being this very diverse place. Yeah. But it's yeah. only diverse when you look at the whole thing. If you look at it neighborhood by neighborhood, it's extremely segregated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a history to that, you know, there's a history to that. That's not just like, oh, well, I guess white people like to live around other white people and black people like to live around other black people. There's redlining. There's all these kind of things that um, forced people to live in certain areas. And it's going to take a long time before that structural inequality is, is uh, eradicated. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of things. I think it's A getting people of color and black voices into positions of power in, in movies, TV, you know, podcasting, music. Um, and it's also changing the way, changing these barriers that are in housing and lending and employment. Um, there's, they're still in there. They're still in the system. And it's going to take a long time before that that's kind of eradicated finally. Yeah, what were the um, uh, what was Brooklyn like during the the protests? Was that a particularly scary time for like where you where you live? Was it stuff right literally in your doorstep or anything? Well, I I don't live um, where I live is kind of far away from central Brooklyn. I live actually okay. in, in I live in Chinatown. I live in an, in an area that's um, Brooklyn has a Chinatown. There's actually a lot of Chinatowns in New York that's not the one in Manhattan that most people know. Mm. So I live in an area that's right on the borderline between sort of the Chinese and East Asian area. And then if you go a block over, it's sort of like Central American. And then if you go a block in the other direction, it's um, Hasidic Jewish area. So I'm sort of in this in-between area, but it's, okay. it's not really near where the protests were. But I also have not really been, I've been spending most of the time, like I relocated with my family out to where I grew up in New Jersey. So I'm, even though now we're sort of going back and forth more, um, I've had this weird sort of like, I'm sort of looking at it from afar. Uh, we moved out like kind of near when the, really the apex of the pandemic was happening. Um, we were lucky enough to, to be able to move because I know a lot of people weren't. Um, but because my wife, like I was saying, has she runs a nonprofit organization and even though they were an essential service at the time, she was able to sort of uh, work from home most days of the week. And, and since my work stopped and my daughter's school shut down, we figured it'd be a little safer to, to be out in, in the suburbs and not be um, in the middle of sort of the chaotic response to the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I'm fully aware of my privilege in that we were out of New York City when it really, really hit the worst. But in terms of the protests, there's been protests in this little town. There's, it's, it's actually kind of crazy how 
how, how far the protests have reached. You know, it's not just in city centers like it, it has been. I mean, there's been Black Lives Matter protests last year, the year before, two years before that, three years and four years, but it hasn't reached this level of sort of like mainstream white America that it is now. I think it's kind mm-hmm. of insane. Like in the town that I live in right now, almost every house has a Black Lives Matter sign out in front. I'd say mm-hmm. like 80, 90%. Um, so it's it's interesting we're in a slightly different time. Now, some people might say, well, why did it take this long? Where are those signs, you know, when Philando Castile was 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 murdered or when Eric Garner was murdered or like, you know, why did it take this long for people to really see what's going on? But I think, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I do think things are changing. I think people are starting to be more aware of what's happening. Yeah. Do you, if you don't mind me asking, did you have a chat with your, your daughter about it? Cause we're kind of in the midst of trying to prepare a, a kind of an appropriate, like uh, how you, genuinely sit down and approach this conversation with our nine-year-old yeah and, uh, yeah have you had that conversation because as i said this this stuff was literally happening on your doorstep as such yeah yeah i mean i we definitely did i it's not the first time that i've talked to her about um you know about racial inequality in this country because i mean mm. we live in brooklyn so she has friends who are black we have friends who are black we have friends i mean we we're in a pretty diverse community I think she would be blind if she didn't realize that, okay, people are treated differently based on their skin. Like you can Mm -hmm. see it everywhere. And I think my generation was raised with this idea that, oh, if if the parents ignore it, uh, it'll all go away and our kids will just turn out beautifully, not seeing race, not seeing color, you know? And I don't think it turned out that way. I think there's, it just doesn't work. You know, there's a lot of data that suggests as soon as the kids, maybe one or two, they can already pick up a difference. And there's like a lot of subconscious bias that parents have that we have, you know, that I have as a parent and that if I don't counter it with something that I'm actively trying to show her, I think she's just going to repeat, just pick up on my subconscious biases. So yeah, we, it wasn't the beginning of the conversation, but it was definitely, we extended the conversation and I didn't want her to feel fear for her own life but Mm -hmm. i'm also conscious for the fact that we have the privilege she's biracial but my wife is asian we have the privilege that she probably is not going to have that kind of violent encounter with the police um you know my friends who are black are are having a conversation with their kids that's totally different you know they have to have a lot more rules and restrictions about what their kids can do you know because the stakes are different, you know? So, you know, I I don't know. Maybe I I share, I probably share too much with her. Maybe she's going to be traumatized for life, but I think at this, at this, at this point, you can't not share what's going on. Hmm. Um, I showed her some pictures of rallies and protests because her classmates, some of her classmates had been going to protests. Some of her classmates, the protests went by their house, you know, like, so um, I, you know, she had a lot of questions I try. I tried to just pick up on what the energy she was putting out, and and she wants to know now the history of protests, like how long have protests been happening, who else has had protests, like we as Jewish people have we ever had to protest for our for our lives and for our rights, and what's what's our history. Um, 
we did, you know, I had her make, I had her sort of contribute in a little way, like we joined a protest here, we did a sign um, so she could understand what people are going through. Um, and, we, you know, I, I don't know, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation, you know, it's, yeah. it's definitely not something that a four or six or a nine year old can understand in one sitting, but I think it's important that they understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. But every parent's got to figure that out on their own. Like our, her best friend, the parents just didn't really feel it was the right time to talk about that as, in the, you know, when people are still trying to adjust to social distancing and the quarantine and everything else, and it was too stressful. So I guess everyone's got to kind of make their own decision. Yeah. Yeah. In, in light of everything, though, with resilience, did you consider not putting it out now? Literally, for I about... know it, it had been <laughs> in the works for a long time. I know, I, I definitely know that because we were discussed uh, working on this album already. But did you kind of think, I'm not, you know, this isn't the right time, I'm going to bench this? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, literally, like, for a while, the album didn't have a title. And I was, I had, I had this idea I was going to call it, like, um, now I can't think of the title I had for it, but it was basically like, oh, I know what it was. I was going to call it Crippled by Indecision. Like literally every oh, wow. aspect of this, every aspect of this record was the most like indecisive thing I've ever been. Cause I'm usually like, I know exactly what I want and I'd never been this unsure about anything ever in my life. And like beginning three or four years ago, I mean, that's partially why the EP came out when it did. Cause those songs on the EP was that was the beginning of my new quote unquote album. And after I, after I did it, I was like, Oh man, these songs are terrible. I hate them. My new album sucks. I'm never going to put out music again. And eventually I started writing music that I felt fit my emotion better, which is the music that ended up on resilience, but I still kind of liked the songs on cross currents, but they didn't really fit. So that's why I decided to put that out as an EP. Mm. Um, but yeah, every, at every point along the way, I, I was like, I'm, I don't want to put this out. And then especially when, I mean, I felt like I wasn't ready to record it and I pushed myself to record it. Then after we recorded it, I was like, oh, I don't like this. I'm not going to put it out. So then six months down the line, I kind of like was okay. I'm like, I'm going to put it out. And then the, then I literally the day that I finally finished the press release, I'm like, I'm going to put this out. <laughs> that's when it, that's when uh, all the schools shut down in New York City. So, <laughs> oh yeah, the original release date was going to be well, the original release date. I was hoping was going to be February March, but it wasn't really finished in time. So then it was going to be June, and then then I had to rethink things. And I was like, okay, maybe I should put it off till next year. Mm. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the music is of a certain time. And actually, it's like my friend put it last night. She was saying that it was a good, you know, she said I made the right decision to release it now. And she said, you know, you don't want to be 10, 10 and a half months pregnant, which is basically how I felt. I was like, I felt like very, very pregnant with this album. And, right. you know, I felt like it was the time to put it out. The business part of me wanted to wait because honestly, I've released a lot of albums already and each time I release an album, I feel like I don't fully prepare for the release. Like I don't really get a good tour booked. I start too late getting press, you know, like I always feel it's, it's a little rushed because I'm DIY. I do everything myself. Mm, yeah. So I was determined for this album not to let that happen. 
I was determined to really have a tour that was booked, you know, that corresponded with the album release so that it's not like totally out of sync. But I, you know, when it came down to it, the music is a personal thing for me and it's, it's, it's business, but it's really personal. And so I felt like it, I wanted to release it and it had to be released. And I feel like it does speak to the times in a weird way, even though absolutely does. it was written before a pandemic and before George Floyd was killed. But a lot of the songs on here were actually in response to other sort of injustices, um, uh, other police killings and also mass killings. Like, you know, in this country we had this horrible problem with guns and people just going crazy and shooting people like in mass with guns. And there's just all kinds of problems. And I just, a lot of it, I was feeling really overwhelmed and I felt a lot of that emotion came out in the, in the music here. And some of it was specific, like healing was specifically thinking about how we as a society are going to heal after everything that we've been through. Um, but I think that emotion sort of permeated the whole album of just a little bit feeling overwhelmed, but also feeling like we have to make a step forward. We have to progress. What was contributing to the indecisiveness that you mentioned? Um, I don't know. I mean, I just thought maybe the songs weren't good enough. I, some of the songs I wasn't really sure how to, you know, I obsessed over them for a long time. I recorded these songs so many times um, before this actual recording, mm. you know? So yeah, it's, I don't know why in the past, usually I had an idea and the idea was clear from the very beginning. I think really only two or three of these songs were like that. I think the first song and the last song on the album basically were came together from the get go. Like I knew exactly mm. what, what I had the vision I was able to communicate the vision to the musicians on the album. And in the end, I was happy with them. But mostly other songs that, I don't know, they had to, they had to, they had to germinate for a while, I guess, mm. <laughs> you know. And that's not normally the way it works for you, I guess. You're normally, you know, it uh, clicks or it doesn't or? Yeah, I think usually in the past, I mean, I'm older now, you know, I started making records maybe 15 years ago. At the time, I had an idea. We recorded it. It was basically it. But then I kind of like learned from that. And each time I make a record, I feel like I learn a little bit better. I think you mentioned really early in this interview about how this album felt more multi-layered. Yeah, right. But yeah. I, 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 in a way, I hope that it's actually a little bit less. Like what I've been trying to do is actually simplify some of my ideas. I think in the past. Um, I have the tendency to make things too complicated. So that's, that's been my struggle the last few years is how to simplify and how to, how to take out oh, the stuff that's well, not needed, you know? Sure. I mean, I think part of what I meant was with multi-layered was in terms of the messages because you're oh, yeah. like with cross current, you're, you're not hitting anybody over the head with what that project is about. You know, it's quite yeah. subtle intonations of how you're making, um, you're, uh, making, making the point and how you're making, uh, kind of what your message uh, on the project is, even just the the fact that one of the tracks is called uh, inflection inflection point. You know, to know what that is, then you kind of get a feeling of what it is. It's like yeah. we have Sarah Elizabeth Charles on the album. She's not saying, you know, specifically this is what this is about, and this is you know change this or or anything. So there was it was multi layered in terms of the messages there to be discovered, uh, and I think a lot about resilience kind of uh, 
connects in that same way. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think maybe I was like figuring out how I could be vulnerable in a way. And you know, because I'm not a singer, it's harder for me to convey a verbal message. I think on this album because I wrote two of the songs, but I had other people sing them. Mm-hmm. The you know, the lyrics tell a story and hopefully with those songs it was a little more direct. Um, with instrumental music, yeah. it's harder to really give a specific, specific message. I think maybe today it doesn't matter as much because so much of what we know about our artists is through other media. It's through social media, it's through podcasts like yours, it's through radio, it's through, you know, so we get more of a context for what, what's going on. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. I think as, as I get older, I guess that's part of, that's part of my growth is that I just try, I'm trying to simplify and try to figure out my own message to, you know, figure out yeah. more knowledge of self and, and how to convey that. Yeah. I probably, I don't know. Maybe I think those, those questions probably have a, a stronger impact on your music than you may realize. You know, I, I think those yeah. last few projects of yours that there's, there is this, there's strong messages being kind of permeating through your music. And um, yeah, I think it does make it more, uh impactful thank yeah. you yeah yeah i think um, as well the the first single from from the project is so exciting because it it pairs two heavyweight names in yourself and christian scott who i'm ugh, an insane fan of <laughs> so the the title track again the first single there's a great studio video for the uh the, the track as well uh how did you come to um collaborate with with christian scott for the for the track well Basically, it's the same story with most of the people that I'm able to work with. You know, he was somebody that I, I listened to. I was a fan. I went to see him in shows. I remember seeing him a long time ago at a back. I mean, I, I've seen him so many times, and every time I'm just blown away. He's got charisma. He's got um, a, a vision. He's got a really, really unique vision for not just his playing, but like the yeah. total package. His compositions his ideas about production um his ideas about arranging his ideas just entrepreneurship like how um and education and activism and just combining all that and like he's been doing that since he was very young so he's someone i looked up to now he is in some of the same circles that i'm in in new york um, and he i got the opportunity to do some engineering for him for his uh, trilogy that came out maybe two years ago now. Yeah, so Sarah, Sarah, yeah, Sarah Elizabeth Charles, who's Sarah's one of my closest friends also has mm. worked with Christian a long time. Yeah. And so when he asked her to be on his album, she had suggested, Oh, why don't we go record at Jesse's studio? So I've recorded some things for her and for Christian and for Elena Pinderhues, who's a brilliant singer and yes. flautist. so i kind of i got to know christian through that i also got to know christian because he was producing sarah's last record that i had contributed to uh i co-wrote a couple songs with sarah and i played on the record for a song or two and so i got to kind of just hang out with him in the studio and vibe with him and Mm. um he so i guess about a year ago i guess maybe this is not this is not public but Sarah, I guess it's public now. Sarah, Sarah had asked me to work on. Uh, how should I put this? Sarah asked me to work on a new project that she was doing with Christian, and so through that, um, 
which hopefully will come out. That was also supposed to come out earlier this year. Um, I feel like we did something that was really, really incredible and I would love for people to hear it, but I guess when it's ready, it'll be ready. So in any event, you know, through these interactions, I was able to get to know Christian. And even though we had never performed, we never played live together. We just knew each other to, you know, and I think he had come to some of my shows or he had been aware of my playing. So when I wrote that song, Resilience, um, as I was workshopping it, I kept hearing this, his voice specifically in my head, like as I was writing it. And I, we tried recording it a couple of different times with sort of different, different musicians or with me sort of playing the lead role. But in the end, I, it, it, I realized it had to be Christian's voice on the thing. And he was gracious enough to do it, which I was really, really grateful for. Um, and I was really happy with the way it came out. So, yeah. It's a wonderful song. Yeah. And it's, as I said, it's two amazing names in yourself and uh, Christian Scott. It's a real dream pairing. So thank you. Uh, as a fan, yeah, thank well, you very I hope much. We do more I'm together. really excited. That... <laughs> Thanks. Oh, I, I hope yeah, you guys I really... and I look forward to this other yeah. project that you guys mentioned. I was really right? excited to work with him on this. Yeah. I, when it's time, I'll tell you more about it, but it's, it's going to be really cool. Sure. Sure. So, you know, but that, that's basically all the people that I was able to get, on this record to have contribute because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a DIY. I'm an indie artist in the real meaning of the world. Like I don't have a financial backer. So I was really, really honored that so many people would be willing to contribute without, you know, I, I'm, I do pay a lot of money. Like my major costs are paying the musicians, but I regret that I'm right. not able to like really compensate the way a true record label should, you know, yeah. I think of myself as an entrepreneur, but even though I've been doing it a long time, like I'm really not making any money. I'm, I'm always operating at a loss, which is kind of sad, but I'm just accepted that that's the way it is right now. And I feel like the music is important enough that I just have to put it out. And if the business, do, if the business end doesn't work out, you know, so be it. I have other things I'm making money with. So yeah, this, I guess studio wise, you're, uh, is probably the the day job as such, right? Yeah, like my day job is basically owning a studio. Although owning a studio in New York City is not a great <laughs> not a great business model either, especially now. But I do other things. You know, I do help people with the this is this whole pandemic has opened my eyes to other ways I can contribute that would actually make money. You know, I, I've been doing. Um, I have a background in tech. Actually, I have a computer science degree, so. Oh, wow. I've been doing more, so, you know, helping people with WordPress, helping people design sites, helping people with video editing, helping people with their mixes. I've been doing a lot of remote mixing and overdubbing on keyboards and stuff. So, you know, it's like a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. So I think moving forward, once I'm able to properly tour, like I feel like I felt a little hamstrung because I felt like I've never tried to really tour the band. And partially because I felt like I never had the right music to tour. I feel like this album, I finally have music that I think is really competitive on an international stage. And I was hoping to get on some international stages this year. I was supposed to make my debut at Ronnie Scott's in April, which didn't happen. So oh, wow. Played. Yeah. I really, uh, you know, I, I really hope that I do hope that somehow the money will come back to me as an artist. Um, yeah. I'm happy playing the background role. Like, I don't think that, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, I have to be the star. I'm, I'm happy actually being an engineer and I love engineering and I don't do it because I, you know, because 
I can't make it as a musician. I actually love engineering and I love producing also. Mm. So hopefully in the future, I'll be able to find a good balance between engineering, producing and, and touring and performing um, that is actually financially going to work and, and allow us to save as a family. Yeah, it is tricky, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's great that you, you're you're sort of so well-rounded to be able to sort of put yourself into all these other uh businesses and scenarios and everything like that but obviously as a as a fan music is uh uh certainly what what you know i'm the most invested in with the name jesse fisher so uh i always Thank look you. forward to new yeah, projects yeah but definitely it, don't so. sleep on some some of the artists i've produced yeah i'm i'm really proud of the the artists that i've been able to produce oh, yeah. also um are not necessarily in the jazz world and so that's a whole other part of my musical life that I really am excited by and I've never been even as a music fan I've never been just in jazz I've always gone between jazz and pop and other kinds of music so uh you know a lot of the music I've produced has it still hasn't come out which is kind of sad the last few years but um you know hopefully it'll come out eventually and I really, really enjoy There's a lot that you enjoy have working produced, with though. artists and helping them, helping them find. Yeah, I mean, I, I've produced an artist named Brenda Nicole Moore, whose album came out three years ago. Uh, she was literally I the one I was about to cite. Yeah, I was. Yeah, although her new album is going to be crazy. I think it's releasing the same day as my album. It was produced by Troy Miller, who's you know worked with Laura and Vula and um, Gregory Porter. So that's a little bit of a. It's a little bit more of a jazz vibe for her. Um, I wasn't involved in this one, but I'm looking forward to hearing it for sure. Um, I was involved with a record by an artist named Elise Testone last year that, that came out about a year ago. That's really great. Uh, more of a sort of a pop, pop rock soul vibe. Um, yeah, I really do miss making records, but it's so hard because it takes a lot of money to make a record right. And artists just don't have the, the money and labels are not really putting up the money in the way that they used to. So it's been hard and cost of living in New York is just crazy expensive. Like I moved to New York in 2005 when you could be kind of a young musician and make a living and still get by and and save up to make a record. But I don't see how people are doing it, you know, to the way rent is today. It's, it's crazy. People are paying like half or more than half of their income is rent now. It is, it's incredible how, how people are able to, to function in that capacity, isn't it? As an as a independent artist, as an independent label owner, a studio owner. It's, yeah. It is incredible. And the way labels have fit into to current situations is also very difficult. They themselves have had to uh, adapt so much where they, there seems to be less of an investment into a, a, an artist from the ground up. It's, they want to sort of recruit, it appears that they want to sort of scoop people up who already have that following and that product available and ready to go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people are less, less willing to take a risk and understandably because yeah. there's less money to yeah. go around. But, you know, the, the issue is beyond music. It's really just like, how do you survive in a city where you're working a low-wage job, which, I mean, music is, let's, let's be real, music is a low-wage job, but there's so many people that don't even have the option of doing music, and the rent keeps going up, and people keep buying houses next to you and refurbishing, the, you know, renovating them, and then the, suddenly the rent is like four times what it was two, three years ago. So... Even if your apartment, the rent doesn't go up, everything else goes up in the whole neighborhood. And the it's just, 
it's the cost of living is just rising really, really fast. I think the same thing in San Francisco. It's probably the same thing in London. I don't know. Yeah, but absolutely. Just the world has a huge problem that has to do with wages being stuck in the same place or going down yeah. and, and the competition Everything for jobs is going up and that, you know, the, the people who own property and who have wealth are just getting much, much richer and uh, <laughs> everything is the prices for things is going up, but the wages are not going up. So we're, mm. we're stuck. We need a new, we, we need a totally new paradigm shift. So that sounds like I'm a great title for the next awakens. album. <laughs> yeah, par- paradigm shift. Well, you know, that's what Inflection Point was supposed to be about. Yes, I, I guess so, yeah. I actually redid If you listen to the album, there's a song on here called Reflection Point, which is basically a, right. a complete re- remix of that song, Inflection Point, where I wasn't right, actually yeah. happy with the way it came out before I, I rewrote it. But, you know, I don't know how many more times it's going to happen, um, which is kind of the, the theme of same mistakes. It's like we do keep making the same mistakes, and how many more times are we going to allow ourselves as a society to, to shoot ourselves in the foot? Because, you know, you think if you're in the 1% that this stuff doesn't affect you, but it really does. You know, it only takes one delivery worker to deliver your groceries who is sick and who spreads it into your household and you might get sick and die. So yeah, I think right. a pandemic is a little bit of a leveler. I mean, it's obviously not because it's affecting black and brown people here a lot more than it is white people. And partially that's because they're more likely to be in the service industries. But um, I don't know. Hopefully, there's going to be a little bit of a yeah paradigm shift <laughs> that, yeah. that it's necessary. <laughs> yeah, across the is world. This, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I don't. Yeah, it does feel like everything's reaching a a boiling point, and it's there's no solution to to it. It's just you're you know. Yeah, I mean, I there's solutions, just, but we just have to get people on board. I think there's viable yes. solutions. We just have to get enough people on board to where it's going to have mainstream support. Yeah. Um, there's one more, if I so, may ask about your, um, uh, going back yeah. to resilience for a moment, there was another name that I was very excited about when, when you initially released the, uh, the track list and I went through, you know, to see who was on it. I was very happy to see uh, Becca Stevens on the release. Cause again, last time we had spoke, I think my question to you was who's someone that you haven't worked with that you would really like to work with. And you mentioned a couple of names, Laura and Vula was one. And you said oh, Becca yeah. Stevens was, was another. And, uh, I think, yeah, at that time, uh, uh, unless you were keeping it under your hat, you hadn't actually collaborated yet, but she was occupying time in your studio and you had sat in on a couple of sessions as a, just as a guest. So uh, I was very happy to see that it did actually culminate into an actual collaboration for the album. Yes. I was really happy. She's another person that I just was always a fan of. And that's usually what I do when I make records. I mean, I try to get people who I like personally, like there has to be a mm. personal connection. And then, um, somebody whose music I really appreciate. And she, I've always been a fan of hers, but the, the last album she put out with, the previous one, before this one, um, I really I really fell in love with. And that was actually pretty, also, I think, produced by Troy Miller. Right. Troy's a, a genius. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, my daughter's here. <laughs> Hi. I'm, on, I'm doing the interview. So yeah, Becca was somebody that his music was really meaningful to me. And uh, I wrote this song called Push Pull. And I'd actually co-written it with another singer-songwriter named Mei Chung, who um, has a beautiful album out several years ago that I did some work on. Um, 
more of a singer-songwriter vibe, but also a little jazz-oriented and pop-oriented. Um, but I'd written this song, and it was try I was trying to find the right voice for it. And then after Becca had kind of been in and out of my studio, she was working with Nick Hard on this most recent album, who Nick was one of the engineers who was sharing the space with me. I think you just kind of, in life, you have to take advantage of opportunities and, like, not take advantage in the sense of taking advantage to, um, not in an opportunistic way, but more in yes, a, you course, have to be course, open yeah. to things. And like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying more to, to see like what the universe is saying to me in a way. And like, I know yeah. it sounds kind of new agey, but it's, 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 it's almost this Taoist kind of thing of like, okay, things are happening. And like, this person is in my life now in a way. And there's this song that's kind of in my life and it really connected to me, it was connecting with her. And even though we didn't really have much of a working relationship, like I had done this video shoot with her before, a couple of months before that. And um, we worked together, it was really cool, but we didn't really have that personal relationship as friends yet. Yeah. But I just had this feeling that, you know, it would be cool. And actually, you know, she, she came into the studio, it was really hard to kind of connect because she's always in and out of town she came into the studio and, and she, she nailed the song. And she actually said afterwards, she was like, you know, it's cause we didn't really have time to talk about what the song was about. And for me, the meaning of it. And afterwards she said, oh, you know, this really actually connected with me this day today, because I was going through this thing and it, it really like kind of connected in this, un, this surreal way. So hmm. I think it was just one of those experiences where you say, okay, yeah, I think this is kind of like meant to happen in a way it, yeah, it, it so worked out in a really, in a way that, yeah, serendipitous, thank you. So, yeah, and it's funny because I really wanted her to play, you know, she's super gifted. I mean, she plays mandolin and charango and guitar and harp yeah. and all these different instruments. And it was the day that I got her to come in, I really wanted her to, to lend some other instruments, but it was, she was, like, about to leave for tour. She was in between, like, she was literally only there for a couple hours, so we didn't have time. I ended up because I also have a background in, in folk music and I play a bunch of sort of more folky instruments. So I ended up putting some, playing some mandolin on the track and playing some other stuff. And it kind of now sounds more like a Becca Stevens record to me, even though she wasn't playing. Um, I think I kind of like stole right. her style a little bit on the, on the song. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> she, you know, she said she likes it. So that's good. But that's um, excellent. You know, like, every, yeah, like everyone on the album, I tried to both, get the person that suited my song, but also in a way right for that person. There's a, there's a song on here that's featuring Gregoire Marais, who's a Swiss yeah. harmonist, like to me, the, the world's leading harmonica player who I've also been a fan of for like 10 or 20 years. And that was another situation where I was like, okay, I kind of was in the process of writing the song. And I was like, you know, what would be great here is if Gregoire came by and played harmonica and to actually have it culminate in him being in the studio, it's just, it's such a great feeling. Yeah, it must absolutely. You know, and that's true for everyone on the record, uh, both the the big name guests, but also just like every single person that's on the record. I feel like nailed their part, and I was really, really happy that people were willing to to rock with me and to go with my vision. Yeah, I I, I hope what is I imagine the inevitable wave of praise and plaudits that the album is about to receive when you know on, on its official release. I hope that will do a lot to alleviate your kind of concerns uh about you know the, the 
when you were putting it all together i think it's a really stunning project i think it's a really uh it's a wonderful album sort of befitting your talents and uh it's timely in so many ways and um it's uh it's probably it's a it's a needed project i think so i mean as a fan congratulations and thank you for it and i really appreciate i, I again I'm, I'm i'm very mindful of your time and i could literally keep you for another hour i've got so much stuff to talk oh, about you. but i'm uh well, yeah we'll but do I a follow-up in a few months how about that that would that, I, I will hold you to it yeah <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, I appreciate yeah so chatting with you. that's really kind I, I honestly really really i yeah, I've been looking forward to this because I, I, our last conversation, I don't know how much you remember of it, but I really, really enjoyed it. And it got such great, uh, such a great response. And um, it's very easy to talk to. You're very, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a great energy. Uh, and I really enjoy uh, hanging out with you. So I get to say I've done it twice now. So that, that means a lot. So thanks very much for your time and this amazing Thank album. So much for uh, my pre-order yeah. is in. Yeah, no, my pre-order is in as well. So uh, I I look forward to my copy of Flipped 2 and uh, Resilience. So that's, yeah. So so again, awesome stuff, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, As you know, we we have a closing song, uh, which you have the luxury of picking for uh, listeners right now. So may I ask if you had a moment to pick something to send people home happy with? Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, before I do so, I mean, I want to thank you for being such a thoughtful interviewer and really trying to understand you know, where I'm coming from, I, you know, you don't have to, but you took the time to really check it out. And, and I appreciate that. And to everyone who's listening, you made it all the way through this really long winded interview. Thank you. <laughs> and if, you know, if you'd like to know more, my socials, I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. Those are my socials and you can find me, Jesse Fisher Music, J-E-S-S-E-F-I-S-C-H-E-R-M-U-S-I-C. Um, and the music is available, will be available everywhere August 10th. Is that right? Or 7th? 7th, 7th, 7th yeah. <laughs> we can edit that bit out. Yes, so, no problem. <laughs> yes, in any event, thank you for listening. Um, I was thinking, since you've taken all this time, we should premiere a new track that nobody's heard yet. Um, the last track, The final track on the album, it's called Meditation on Peace. Uh, it's, fe- it's featuring the great Godwin Louis, who I referred to earlier in the interview, who had written that song, I Can't Breathe. Um, yeah. So this is kind of like, it's a little bit of my own version of uh, his music. And again, it was something that I kind of had written on my own, but also felt was suitable towards for his playing. So I was really happy that, that he was able to join me on this one. Amazing. Yeah, if Thank you don't you know Godwin, though, look him up because he's, he's a brilliant brilliant composer and saxophonist and he's done lots of stuff with you with yourself before as well hasn't he prior projects yeah he played on i think he played on my last two albums Mm. and he he also has a debut album that is just like so beyond i mean he's really invented his own language It, it, it combines haitian music and classical music and choral and secular and and gospel and everything so wonderful i've definitely been influenced a lot by him and inspired a lot by him (laughs) 